This is the Lost Mountain Baptist Church podcast. We exist to help all kinds of people find and follow Jesus. For more information about service times, giving, and upcoming events, check out our website, lmbc.us. We hope you enjoy this week's message. You know, in no way am I trying to diminish the power of the last song that we just sang together, but I was standing over there by Matt, and we get to the second verse, and instead of singing visions of rapture, I totally hear Matt sing, visions of sugar plums. If there's one thing Matt is good at, it's preaching. If, it's one, if there's one thing he's bad at, it's remembering lyrics to songs. Because he totally said visions of sugar plums. That totally happened a few minutes ago as we began singing that song. <laughs> hey, good morning, everyone. It's good to see you. Um, if you don't know me, my name is Jake. I'm the executive pastor here, so I have the opportunity to privilege to preach from time to time, and so this is one of those Sundays, so I'm definitely grateful for that opportunity. But before we dig into our text this morning, what I really want to do, and this is going to require all of us who are willing and able to stand yet one more time, and then I'll sit you back down, but could we stand together as we say out loud the Lord's Prayer together? The words will be on the screen behind me, so let's just say this together as we commit to this time of looking at the word of the Lord together. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive those, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. This is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. You can be seated. I think we've lost that as the church because the church for centuries began their worship time together by reciting the Lord's Prayer together. And so we can celebrate and collectively lend our voices to the truths of that statement this morning in preparation for hearing from God's Word. As we started last week, you know that we've been in Colossians 1 for a minute. We're continuing our message series through the book of Colossians. So you can go ahead and make your way to Colossians chapter 1 if you have a Bible app or a physical copy of the Scriptures. But what I want to do before we dig into our text this morning is really spend a little bit recapping what Matt began preaching on last week. Because when we get to Colossians 1, we get to the preeminence of Christ that is in verses 15 through 20. That is one of the premier Christologies of the entire New Testament. And what I mean by Christology is that anything that is centered around the person and nature of Christ. And so what Paul is speaking of specifically in Colossians 1 verses 15 through 20 relates to everything that Christ is and what he has done 
for fallen humanity. And so we're focusing our concentration on that specifically in verses 18 through 20 today. But I wanted to take just a few minutes to recap last week because it's certainly important and relates directly to verses 18 through 20, which is what we'll be discussing throughout our time today. Now, beginning in verse 15, Paul says the Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. And Matt made reference to John chapter 1, verse 18, where it says, no one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. So Christ is eternally prior to and supreme over everything that has been created. And victories are won in the realization that Jesus is superior to everything else in authority, power, and status. So what Paul is trying to communicate to the Colossian church here is that he is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn over all creation. There is something that is unique about Jesus that is different, that is secondary compared to who Christ is and who he claimed to be while he was upon the earth. And this is very fitting for what we'll be discussing today Because in light of the fact that we are celebrating Easter in just a couple of weeks now, this is the focal point of the the resurrection. Jesus went to the grave and defeated both sin and death while in the grave and was rose again in resurrection power on the third day, defeating that sin, defeating that death. So there is something that unique that has to take place when we consider and focus on who Jesus is and who he claims to be. And so the fact that we're sitting in here this morning together, most of us have subscribed to that reality. Jesus has made such a difference in our lives to where we gather here Sunday after Sunday. We meet in small groups. We go out with friends. We uh, connect with other Christians because there's something that is a bond that we share between us, and it is the resurrection of the Lord Jesus himself. We subscribe to the reality that that was a verifiable moment in history where Christ defeated both sin and death by overcoming both of those things, and there is a bodily resurrection that has occurred from the grave. This is very significant for us as believers. And I know that most of us know that, but most of us have the tendency to forget that from week to week. And that is, that's displayed quite frequently by the way that we live by the way that we speak, by the way that we treat one another. We forget about the essentials of the resurrection because it has literally altered everything about our existence. Or it should. 
And so as we continue on with this recap from last week, it says, for in him all things were created. Pay attention to that word all. In him all things were created. Christ is the agent of creation. That's what that's saying. In him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers, rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. That means all seen and unseen realities, all powers, both personal and structural, that which is natural and that which is supernatural originates through Christ. Christ. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Verses 17 is essentially communicating that Christ is eternal. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the beginning and the end. And he, as Hebrews 1.3 says, sustains all things by his powerful word. So when we're talking Christologies of the New Testament, we've got John 1, we've got Colossians 1, we've got Hebrews 1, that says he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. This cannot be reiterated enough. It is very essential to the Christian faith that Jesus is God. And that is something that is very controversial in the time that we live in. And it was no less controversial in the time where Paul is actually pinning this and sending it along to the Colossian church through Epaphras. Remember, Epaphras was the one that probably heard the message of the gospel through Paul in Ephesus And he carries the message of the gospel back to Colossae and conversions start happening left and right. So when Paul writes this letter in prison, he sends it along to the church of Colossae to encourage them, to encourage that church that had been developed under Epaphras' leadership. And people are being saved and people are grappling with some of the heresies that have been uh, uprising throughout that particular area. And, and Paul writes this as a corrective for them. Now, there's, there's this guy named Abraham Kuyper. He was a pastor, he was a journalist, he was a theologian and writer who started his very own university. He was also a politician who founded his own political party believe it or not, and would eventually become prime minister of the Netherlands from 1901 to 1905. He's known for this significant insight that he shared in his inaugural lecture at the Free University of Amsterdam. And I quote, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry mine. Everything belongs to Christ because everything originated with Christ. It belongs to him. And nobody 
gets to say what he can or can't do with what belongs to him. And so at this point, this, this poem or hymn, because realistically, verses 15 through 20 of chapter 1 in the, the verse of Colossians was probably either a poem or a hymn that could have very well been sung by the early church that gathered, much like we do. But there's a transition that takes place. See, everything about uh, verses 15 through 17 speaks of creation, while verses 18 through 20, what we'll be concentrating our time on today, speaks of the reconciliation or new creation. Christ is first over all creation, but he is also first over all the new creation, which we'll get to in just a second. So let's pick up in verse 18 of chapter 1. If you got your Bibles, go ahead and grab them and look at verse 18 of chapter 1. It says, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. Now, it's interesting here that Christ is only referred to as the head of the body here in the book of Colossians and also in the book of Ephesians, which they're parallel. This is the only place in the New Testament where Christ is actually referred to as the head of the body. And it says, he is the beginning. This is the Greek word arche, meaning beginning or origin of something. Here the context is referring to the beginning of the church, not actually creation itself, but Christ is the beginning of the church that he is setting up. All the way to April 3rd, 2022, where you and I would be sitting in this place in Lost Mountain Baptist Church in Powder Springs, Georgia. He is the head of that. And he is the beginning of that. He originates the church itself. And he is the firstborn from among the dead. Now this is a reference to Christ's resurrection. Not only is Christ the firstborn over all creation, as I said before, he is the firstborn over all new creation. Paul says in book of 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verse 20 but Christ has indeed been dead the firstborn over those who have fallen asleep or who have died so when it says Christ is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep this is obviously an agricultural metaphor in Christ to the first sample of the harvest thus demonstrating what the other fruits to come will be like. One of the only reasons you and I have to go to Sam's or Costco on Saturday mornings is for the samples. (laughs) There is absolutely no other reason for you and I to go there on a Saturday morning, because why? They're slammed. And I personally don't really thrive in being around enormous groups of people, especially if they have not only access to regular size carts, but the super long ones that they put 
TVs and furnitures on and run into the back of your feet with. It drives me crazy. But the only reason you and I would have for going to the Sam's or to Costco on a Saturday morning is because of the samples. You leave there and you don't even have to have lunch. You're filled with cheese. You're filled with crackers. You're filled with little sausages on toothpicks. You could just make the rounds and everything's perfectly all right. You grab what you need. You've already had lunch. You can go to your house and not come out for the rest of the day. Everything is taken care of. That's essentially what's being communicated from here, if you will allow me that. Christ is the first sample of the good stuff. Think about John chapter 2, the wedding at Cana. What is Christ actually communicating when he transforms the water into wine? He's communicating that something better has taken place, and something better is now on the scene. Christ is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. He is the resurrection. He is the life. And we will undergo a resurrection like his, but for now, he is the first fruits of that resurrection. He is the good stuff. He is the good sample. That's who he is. And that's what we will follow. For God was pleased, this is verse 19, for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. Now this was a crucial point Paul wanted the Colossian church to grasp, considering the ancient Greek mindset preferred that which was spiritual over the mind or anything that was, or of the mind or over anything that was physical. The fullness of God dwelt in a fully human body. Now, this was a very difficult concept for Paul's audience to grasp. So we have to ask ourselves the question this morning, why was Christ's humanity actually something that was necessary? Because here it's being communicated that in him all the fullness of deity dwells, but we also have to grapple with the human nature of Christ himself because he was both fully God and fully man. So let's deal with that for a second. We're okay with the fact that Jesus was God and he existed as deity from eternity. But what is significant about the fullness of his humanity? Now, what I've done here is I've taken pretty much something verbatim out of a 1,300-page systematic theology book. And these are the types of things that Matt likes to read week in and week out. They're not so much for me. I go to them to get what I need, and that's about it. So in order to spare you from looking through a 1,300-page systematic theology document over lunch, what I've done is I've went ahead and lifted these things to give us an idea of Christ's humanity and why that is important specifically. So let's start. Jesus had to be our representative and obey in our place. You see, the first Adam failed. He failed miserably. And we are the benefactors of that failure. So the last Adam 
Jesus stepped in and accomplished what he could not. So Jesus had to be our representative and obey in our place. Number two, Jesus had to be a substitute sacrifice. Jesus became a human being simply because human beings need to be saved. Take a look at Hebrews chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. It says this, For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason, he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Jesus has to be our substitute sacrifice. Number three, to be the mediator, the one mediator between God and men. This is straight from 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5. Uh, Wayne Grudem says it like this, we needed a mediator who could represent us to God and who could represent God to us. In order to fulfill this role of mediator, Jesus had to be fully man as well as fully God. Number four, to fulfill God's original purpose for man to rule over creation. You see, God's original intent for putting man on the earth was to rule over it as his representatives. We instead chose autonomy or self-governance. As a man, Jesus obeyed God fully and therefore fulfilled God's original intent for man. Number five, to be our example and pattern in life. Our lives are to be about conformity to Christ. We are to be changed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, as it says in 2 Corinthians 3, 18. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. Number six, to be the pattern for our redeemed bodies. It's no secret that our current bodies are wasting away, are they not? We will undergo, for those who are in Christ, we will undergo a resurrection like his. And it's really important for us to realize, based upon 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away and therefore the new things have come. And so, so we still inhabit this body that is wasting away. We still inhabit a sinful nature. But at the same time, the moment that Jesus saved us was the very moment we became participants in the new creation. So now, what's, what's, what's really left? We cast off this perishable for the imperishable. We are patiently waiting on the return of Christ when he is the one that will make all things new. He is the one that will take away 
the ailment of whatever it is that you and I consistently deal with. He is the one that makes that comment in Revelation, behold, I'm making all things new. He is the pattern for our redeemed bodies. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Number seven, to sympathize as high priest. Jesus knows and understands through experience the temptations and struggles we face. Let's think about that for a minute. This, this means that he sits with you in the most difficult of circumstances and he is able to communicate, I know. I know. He sits with you through the uncertainty. He sits with you through the marital strife. He sits with you through the job loss. He sits with you through the diagnosis. He sits with you in the times where you wonder if it's all true or not. And he's able to sympathize with our weakness. And he says, I know. I know. I don't know about you, but that serves as a great encouragement to me because I'm just being honest with you. My week has been pretty terrible (laughs) because it just happens sometimes, right? Sometimes we, all that we can do is literally just drag ourselves inside of church and sit in the chair and hope for the best. (laughs) And you know what I'm talking about. Maybe some of you in this room are dealing with that very idea this morning. It's been such a strenuous and difficult week that I almost didn't come. But at the same time, we're here together and we're here for the purpose of celebrating the resurrection of Jesus. The resurrection of Jesus is not something that is just for Easter morning. It is something for every time we gather to worship his name in spirit and in truth. Christ has overcome. Christ has overcome those struggles. And he's able to sympathize with us in our weaknesses because he understands. That's a profound reason for the overall humanity of Jesus. As it says in Hebrews 4.15, where this came from, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. And finally, number eight, Jesus will be a man forever. Now, this is something I had the opportunity to invest a little bit more time on the last time I preached, but Jesus didn't cease to be a human after his death and resurrection. Remember, he's the first fruits. He's the good stuff of the harvest, and our bodies will be resurrected just like his was when he comes again. Colossians 2.9, 
Paul goes on to say, for in Christ, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. In bodily form. Yes, Christ did rise again in resurrection power, but make no mistake of it, he is still fully God and fully man. And if we undergo a resurrection like his, we will become like him. And finally, we get to verse 20. And man, verse 20 packs such a powerful punch. It really does. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. How does God reconcile all things, whether on earth or in heaven? He makes peace through the blood of Jesus that was shed upon the cross. This is the idea of substitutionary atonement. God, listen to this, God is the one that is the offended party. He is the offended party, but yet he takes the initiative to right the wrong through Christ. As a result, there is now peace between God and human beings. Peace is this Greek word called irene, and it essentially means binding together relationships that were broken. Paul goes on later to say in Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14, listen to this. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. The relationship that was broken between God and man due to our own rebelliousness has been bound together by the peace that was made through the blood of Christ shed upon the cross. And we can see the intricate will of God manifested in the cross without a doubt. And here's what I mean. Go ahead, if you will, and turn to John chapter 8. And we're going to pick up in verse 53 and read to verse 59. This is Jesus engaging in conversation with the Jews. And this is a very profound statement that Jesus makes. Starting in verse 53, the Jews say, Are you greater than our father Abraham? He died, and so did the prophets. Who do you think you are? Jesus replied, If I glorify myself, my glory, my glory means nothing. My father whom you claim as your God, is the one who glorifies me. Though you do not know him, I know him. If I said I did not, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him and obey his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. You're not yet 50 years old, they said to him, and you have seen Abraham? Very truly, I tell you, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. 
At this, they picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. Do we get what's going on in this passage? Do we understand the significance of this? Even though it's bad English, what is Jesus communicating? He's communicating to the Jews that he is the very same God that told Moses to take his sandals off in the burning bush because the place upon which he was standing was holy ground. So the Jews that are listening to Jesus say this are internalizing it as blasphemy. And everything about the Old Covenant when it comes to some person uttering blasphemy is to instantly pick up stones and to stone them. But Jesus slips away and he avoids that because it's not yet his time. See, here we begin to realize there's an intricate plan that God himself has set in motion way before this is actually occurring. Let's trace this out a little bit further. In Galatians 3.13, Paul says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. Now that's a reference to Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 23. And by Jesus' day, the Jews or the rabbis they internalize this specifically to mean Roman, and cru- Roman crucifixion because that's what was going on. So when it's time to take Jesus to where he needs to be tried, the Sanhedrin doesn't want Jesus to be stoned. They want God's curse to be upon him. They want God's curse to be upon him based upon what's written in Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 23. But as God willed it so, that's nothing that God himself wasn't aware of would take place. And so when it says, cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole, and the rabbis by that point understanding that to mean Roman crucifixion. Stoning wasn't an option for them. They wanted the full curse of God to be upon Christ, and rightfully so, because that is the way that God set it up. So everything about the curse of God as far as the Old Covenant or the Old Testament and everything that the nation of Israel couldn't follow through with, that is going to fall on Christ himself. So God knew, in accordance with his perfect will, exactly how this would play out. Stoning is not going to be an option. The curse has to fall on Jesus. And Christ has to serve as our substitutionary atonement. Because God made him, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf so that he 
and we might become the righteousness of God so that we might become the righteousness of God. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. And so this is the intricate plan of God being worked out for your salvation and for my salvation. God knew exactly what he was doing. He knew how to fulfill this plan of redemption, which only he could do. Because if you and I are good at anything, it's failing. And this is not a means of picking ourselves up by our own bootstraps. Because we can't do that. God has made peace through the blood of the cross. New Testament scholar M.T. Wright, who is no stranger to being quoted here at Lost Mountain, says, the logic of this message requires that those who announce it should be seeking to bring Christ's lordship to bear on every area of human and worldly existence. So if he has made peace through the blood of his cross, that makes us peacemakers. The peace of Christ has to rule in our hearts in such a way to where we bring peace tomorrow morning. We bring peace to the restaurant after church today. We bring peace to the guy that cuts us off and flips us off. We bring the peace of Christ into every situation because that's who we are. That's what identifies us with Christ himself. We're familiar with Philippians chapter 2. where it says, beginning in verse 3, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus has the name that is above every other name, and he is most assuredly worthy of that name because he has made peace between us and God 
through his blood shed on the cross. I can think of an I can't think of a better way to be able to focus our attention on the table at this moment. Here in just a minute, we are going to receive communion together. And we invite those of you with us this morning who are baptized believers to at some point during the next song make your way to one of the designated stations. We've got the gluten-free options in the back. But as you approach the table, may it be at the forefront of your thoughts that Christ has made peace through, the, through his blood shed upon the cross. And as you take of the bread and you dip it in the bowl, you recognize that the broken body and the shed blood of the Lord Jesus provides remission of every single one of your shortcomings, every every single one of your defiances, every single one of those sins. He has canceled those things out on your behalf. And so what I'm going to do is I am going to pray for us The band is going to begin leading us in song. In any point in that song, you can make your way to one of the tables and receive communion this morning. To remember and to recall that Christ has made peace through the blood of his cross. In him, he did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing to the point of death even death upon a cross. Would you pray with me? Thanks so much for joining us online at the Lost Mountain Baptist Church podcast. For more information about service times, giving, and upcoming events, check out our website, lmbc.us.